Alright, 1 Kings 11, beginning at verse 9, and we'll skip from there. 9 through 14 first. So the Lord became angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. 23. Hold on. Continuing with 14. Now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king in Edom. And 23. And God raised up another adversary against him, Rezon, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord, Hadrazer, king of Zobah. And 26. Then Solomon's servant Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zerida, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. And 40 to 43. Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt to Shishak, the king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon, all that he did, and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your good and loving Holy Spirit. We thank you how you enable us to worship you aright and pray that you go before this teaching from your word today and uh, help us to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as to uh, verses 1 to 12 of chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes, David Gibson says that Solomon uses three hammers to shatter our illusions that we can be autonomous and control our own lives, that we can be gods and decide our destinies. To destroy our idolatries, he shows us in verses 1 through 6, one thing in life that is certain. In verses 11 through 12, many things in life that are not certain. And sandwiched in verses 7 through 10, he shows us the simple things in life that are wise. Let's begin with Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 3. For I considered all this in my heart, so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner, he who takes an oath, as he who fears an oath. This is an evil, and all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts, while they live, and after that they go to the dead. 
Well, clearly the one thing in life that is certain is death, so I thought it would be a good day to go ahead and kill off Solomon. <laughs> At this point, Solomon, it's, it's good. Um, I don't know what to do with him sometimes, uh, just like I don't know what to do with myself oftentimes. Solomon is so deep in a well of his own construction that it seems like when he looks above, he just sees a pinprick of life. The common destiny of all the living, whether the righteous or the wicked, leads him to despair. Sinclair Ferguson in The Pundit's Folly calls death the final inevitability, but the great uncertainty, obviously referring to the time. It makes nonsense of all life's distinctions. So Solomon questions, what value is wisdom in light of certain death? And he says in verse 1, I laid it to heart, is one of the translations, uh, I think the ESV. So that shows us again, this is an intense and personal journey. Now the prior verse in 8.17 that we handled last week said, Then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to. To find it. And last week we read in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. But here we see Solomon, despite knowing that he can't find it all out, ready to declare it all. He boldly states that the works of the righteous and wise are in the hand of God, subject to to the sovereignty of God. Verse 1 concludes with, People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. There's a debate over whether this means the love or hatred of God in final judgment, meaning that Solomon in his frustration would be saying there is no assurance of salvation. But it seems the context immediately before and after this verse deal with love or hatred, poverty or riches, justice or injustice, specifically because under the sun, even the wise man cannot find out the works of God that will face him in this life under the sun. And that is not a reference to the final judgment. Although it wouldn't surprise us if Solomon would say such a thing. In verse 2, we see Solomon so fixated on death that he collapses the distinctions between the righteous and the wicked, the clean and the unclean. He who sacrificed, these are all the Old Testament uh, means of worship. He who sacrifices and he who does not sacrifice or takes an oath. Remember from chapter 5, how you take a vow to, uh, to keep it and pay it and with haste. He takes an oath and keeps it. Uh, as opposed to him who shuns an oath. They're all treated the same. Well, there may be no visible favor for the righteous on earth or a visible rebuke for the wicked. So Craig Bartholomew writes, For Solomon, one's ethics, whether they're righteous or wicked, and one's worship, clean and unclean, sacrificing or not, taking an oath or not, they make no difference. For all end up dead. In verse 3, this is an evil 
in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. We would do well, or Solomon would do well, to remember his profession in Ecclesiastes 7.29, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. If it is an evil, a bad thing that all men alike die, which it certainly is, then we would do well not to complain when it is the product of our own sins and schemes. Solomon laments the sad state of the human heart, how far gone it is, how far full of evil. Even the so-called righteous practicing evil. And Jeremiah 17.9 would agree when he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In 9, 4 through 6, we read, But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living God is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. So uh, they tell me that a lion was among the most admired of animals in the ancient world, but the dog was a despised scavenger, so it was unclean. So in a way, this might be a a backhanded statement. It takes me to the, uh, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness, you know, willing to take the lowest place in the kingdom of God. Um, So I I think of that, well, the lowliest animal that could be imagined is better than, um, you know, living life as a dead lion. But there there is a bit of irony there, I think, in how Solomon is writing. You're you're not quite sure uh, how to take it. We'll return to that in a bit. Solomon just still seems to be wrestling against orthodox wisdom because he doesn't like what he observes or what his reason tells him. In verse 5, Charles Bridges says, in chapters 2, 3, and 4, Solomon had praised the dead over the living. But here it is the opposite. Life, from verse 4, means hope. He who is joined to all the living, there is hope. The living know that they will die, So there's time to prepare for death while the dead already have their portion. David Gibson, you remember the one living uh, life backward, backwards from death, thinking of death, uh, going to a funeral with with, um, expecting to learn. He says we must stop striving for worldly treasures. To die well does not mean that there is not grief. But that you realize death is the limit God has placed on creatures who want to be gods. To die well means that death happens to me because I am a sinner. Every time, he says, I see a coffin, I realize the world is broken and fallen and under the curse of death. Lay up treasures in heaven, holding everything in this world with open hands, living 
life by being prepared for death. Preparing to die means thinking about how to live. In verse uh, 6, the phrase under the sun confirms that the previous verses have in view the irreparable loss of earthly life. One's portion or share is the measure of joy and satisfaction that comes through one's daily activities and also through a life well lived with godly wisdom for God. It's found not in self-centered pleasures, but only when taken as the gift of God. Death seems so awful to Solomon that it completely overshadows any value to life. I've written a few verses, uh, questions on the board. Um, If death is a certainty, how would knowing that our lives are finite, how should that impact our dreams and aspirations? We all know what our ultimate dream and aspiration is to be with God, His Son, and His Holy Spirit forever. But how should it impact us as we live here today? Life's coming to an end. How will we spend our time and our resources, our gifts, given to us from God? John? I think admitting what Solomon recognizes that the things, earthly things, do pass away, but we are still storing up something in heaven. Right. Are, we, are we storing up judgment and wrath, or are we storing up treasures and, and there will be an accounting even though our works pass away there, there is a spiritual uh, element we are storing up something in heaven are we serving God faithfully storing up treasures and reward are we uh, neglecting uh, those things those decisions even in the finite things that do pass away those decisions are meaningful okay storing up uh, heavenly treasure um you know, part of enjoying life in the Carpe Diem verses and um, in Ecclesiastes uh, may, may necessarily involve some, some gathering of, of earthly treasures. But uh, have they become an earthly treasure that, that pulls our heart down spiritually and distracts from the true eternal pleasures, uh, excuse me, treasures um, that have significance? Anybody else? You know, the purpose here is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Mm-hmm. More of that we do. I guess like Mike Watson says, um, and I kind of paraphrase from his quote, that he says that um, science and arts are hay and stubble, but study of God's word is pearl. Okay. Good, good. difference in, in intent of what you want to do with those dreams and aspirations. 
do you want to become, let's say locally, a superintendent of a school system because you want to make, you know, have a positive impact on that system? Or do you want to become a superintendent because that's the best thing that you could, you know, the highest position you can acquire, uh, you know, over everyone. Um, and you can go on and on with, with all of those, do you, you know, is it an altruistic kind of reason? I, I, I think that maybe it helps temper some of the, you know, I, I think it's a good thing to have dreams and aspirations. But then, you know, what, what are you planning on doing with those things? Okay. Uh, maybe what's the motives behind yeah. our dreams and aspirations? <laughs> sure. Let's read 7 through 10. The uh, sixth of seven Carpe Diem passages. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white, and let not your head, let your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he is giving you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. So these are David Gibson's simple things in life that are wise. We've treated these six passages that we've handled so far as a reflection of life in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Sin caused a crooked creation full of kinks and gaps. But our sin did not uncreate creation and those good things. It certainly affects how we handle them. We can abuse them, certainly. In verse 7, there's the imperative command, go. Go eat your bread with joy. You know, God didn't just have Paul write in Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice, as a general goal. In James 1.2, he didn't have James write, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, as something we need to take our time working up to throughout our life. Has anyone ever entertained the notion that life is hard now, my job is hard, I'm busy at home? I'm sure I'll be more joyful later in life when I have less cares. But if we wait to cultivate joy, we might find it harder than it is for the leopard to change his spots. So the imperative go means now. Go means from move from where you are. Joy is as much a commandment and grounded in the Ten Commandments as it seems... Uh, as it's rooted in the Ten Commandments, and certainly within us as we're made in the image of God. I don't think the image of God comes with a long face. Here is God's bright remedy, Charles Bridges writes, to the former pictures of vanity in this book. Go thy way, enjoy your mercies while you have them. He says, the charge of melancholy is a libel upon religion. Rejoicing, rejoicing even in the midst of heaviness. There's no right for a Christian to complain. He has the gift of his father's undeserved love. Eat and drink. Temporal blessings are doubly sweet as coming from him. We have them in connection with the grand mystery 
of mercy. God now accepteth our work. For God has already accepted your work seems to speak to both justification and works that follow that demonstrate our faith in God. So the godly wise man works with all his might. In a nutshell, that God is taking pleasure in our godly pleasure. And of course, this is very directly parallel to the Genesis 2 narrative. But this is certainly the Carpe Diem passage we've been waiting for. Because here we find other things that have not yet been mentioned. A wife, for the first time and the only time in all seven passages. We see that wine is new. We have the drinking, but a specific mention of wine. White garments and oil. The wife whom you love, in verse 9. This is not the sinful pleasures that King Solomon had chased. This is undivided love over lust, bearing with each other's weaknesses, and stimulating each other's graces. Bridges calls this surely a a fragment of true happiness that has survived the fall. Our portion in life reminds us it is a gift from the sovereign God. David Gibson, if you do not enjoy each other, then it is likely you're simply taking what you can from each other to pursue other goals and ambitions that are never going to give you all they promise. In verse 7, wine. It's hard to believe it hasn't been actually named yet in the Carpe Diem verses, but hasn't Solomon written about it too in his royal experiment? In 2.3, I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guarding, guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly. The difference here is between treating God's gifts as idols or gain and treating his good gifts with with godly wisdom and thankfulness and joy. In the white garments, we see uh, protection from the heat of the desert, of course, but also a reflection of purity, hope, and joy. In the oil, also protecting from a hot climate, a dry climate. Oil is associated in the Bible with joy and gladness. Matthew six seventeen through 18. But when you fast, don't go about with the long face. Anoint your head, wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Matthew's point is not that you should be fakey and comb your hair and anoint your head with a stiff upper lip. But the point of the oil was to worship God aright to let a joyful heart show in our countenance in joy. And remember 8.1 last week when we spoke of godly wisdom, making your face shine rather than being stern of face. And of course, there's Psalm 23, where it's God who anoints our head with oil. Charles Bridges says, In our deepest sorrow, our ground for rejoicing is the same. The joyful Christian is rare. Do not hang your head in melancholy. It is not well to take account from day to day. Is it not well to take account from day to day of the mercies, sovereign and undeserved, flowing in upon us? Ill does it become us to appear before our Father with a wrinkled brow instead of acknowledging his just claim to our affectionate, dutiful, 
unreserved, delighting confidence. This is a godly gift rooted in a theology of creation. And we must keep it that way. Never do less than Christ who loved us when we were dead in our sins. Now the second question, don't get nervous. It's private. Something to think about. What are some things we could do today? Making sure I have the right question up there. What are some of the things you could actively seek to enjoy and relish today and tomorrow? Or put differently, what thorn in our flesh that we've let rob our joy could we thank God for today? Let me, let me read that passage from 2 Corinthians 12. Seven through ten. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We'll break um, verse 10 into two sections. 10a, what the hand finds to do indicates both strength and ability, seeking out opportunities that may be found. Tackling life and all of its joys and opportunities with all our might is interesting because that's how Solomon had given himself over to sin with both feet in. The only question is, will we handle life with godly wisdom or the wisdom found in the book of James that is earthly, sensual and demonic? But in the second half of Chapter 10, excuse me, verse 10. We see Solomon saying, For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. We see him again going back to his fixation upon death awaiting. And you wonder if he's not questioning the the verses he just wrote about joy. I've particularly liked... uh, Craig Bartholomew's um, commentary. Whereas most of the commentators kind of resist the urge uh, to, to keep Solomon authentic, they have a tendency to smooth out the rough spots in Ecclesiastes. Bartholomew is constantly questioning how Solomon is writing and what his motives are. And he's not willing to give Solomon a pass here. To do, so, to do so is to, quote, ignore the boiling point to which Kohelet's struggle has brought him. This juxtaposed section witnesses to the enormous tension in the attempt to pursue the logical implications of his methodology. That's observation and experience. While also trying to acknowledge the insights 
of faithful life and religion. The two threaten, as it were, to pull each other apart. As the advice to seize the day becomes imperative, go, so the enigma of life pulls in the opposite direction. The contradiction remains unresolved. How is one to appropriate joy if one is living like a dog? So you just wonder, as Solomon writes, it's, I don't think it's a, sol- a question we can answer in a study of, uh, of Ecclesiastes. Um, but, but I think we all see in him a reflection of ourselves and how we approach uh, and how we approach life or are tempted to at various times when sin rears its head. God uses death and sickness and uncertainty and disaster to take us out of the world that we might raise our anchor up and be unmoored from it. His gifts are meant to make us homesick for heaven precisely because they are good. David Gibson says these verses on food, drink, white garments, a husband, a wife, they should call us to look forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb. John? Yeah, I was just going to observe, I think it's maybe helpful to note that all the things Solomon here in the kind of Carpe Diem verses, it's the same things he was talking about in, in kind of his observations, his experiment. You know, food and drink and, and joy, merriment, um, the love of a woman. And yet, when they're in the rightful place, um, they, they are glorious gifts from God. If, if kind of like we were saying earlier, what's the motivation? Where is it coming from? And yes, it's no fun to live as a dog, but it reminds me of the woman who said to Jesus, you know, even dogs get crumbs from the table. Whose table are we at? What crumbs are we seeking? And if it's the Lord's table, uh, and whatever crumbs he deigns to give us, those are glorious. But if we're at the table of another, those crumbs are destructive. Right. Yeah, living with, uh, living with eyes just on the world. You know, people are going to look at, at status, uh, wealth, whatever, whatever their treasure is. And it's not just monetary, believe me. We know that. Um, but God has, uh, has called us to, to a higher perspective, one that, that looks at life eternally with, uh, with eternal eyes. In 11 and 12, these are David Gibson's many things in life that are not certain. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. For man also does not know his time. Like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time, when it falls suddenly upon them. So time is the great limiter. It puts parentheses around our creatureliness. Remember all the the times in the poem, the times and seasons on the poem in in chapter 3? Those are all times appointed by God to be born, to die, and all of life in between. And a godly understanding of chance 
is not some blind force or lady luck as, as we've discussed before, but just the unexpected events that anyone deals with on any given day. They can suddenly arise, can't they, to overthrow our plans, whether those plans were being pursued from earthly wisdom or even with godly wisdom. Michael Eaton wrote that the wise man must not be so taken up with the contented life as to forget life's frustration, for these do not disappear when the wise man is assured of God's approval. I'm glad he used the word frustration because the Christian must be prepared to accept outcomes as from the hand of God. Accepting the frustration of our plans without becoming frustrated inside. So we use the means, the industriousness that God has given us while committing the outcome to God. And in verse 12, Solomon reminds us again that we do not know our time of death, which is the biggest frustration to all of our plans under the sun. But let the plants be frustrated without actually experiencing the sin of frustration. In James 4, 13 through 16, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that, that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So death should be a teacher. We've talked about that. It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting and mirth. David Gibson says, if death is certain, but its timing is uncertain... What should my life look like in the meantime? It should look like a life lived well. If one day you will be dead, then live today. If you do not know when you will be dead, live now while you can. Wisdom says to enjoy the gifts God has given you, the simple things that give you pleasure. And there's something I miss saying. It was written in a margin a couple of um, chapters back in chapter 7 about going to the funeral and letting it be a teacher. Take children of all ages to funerals because they still have the opportunity to change and improve. Yes, go ahead. Maybe to say, uh, 
to dust you shall return. He might be the first one to go, but you know that's how the church for many, many years, including Rome, Roman church, saw it as well, right? Right. Yeah, uh, just commenting on uh, uh, churches often having uh, graveyards nearby right there. So uh, when you see uh, born 1940, died 2023, you'll know that between that hyphen is filled with a lot of things uh, and, and a, a lot of worldly experiences. And, and that's where they stay, except for the, the uh, heavenly treasures. Uh The third question, what strategies do people use to control the deep and profound uncertainties of life? We could spend a a minute on that if anyone has any thoughts. Some people just don't address them at all. They just ignore it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to think about it now. Okay. Just putting off the thought of death. Think of, uh, yeah, suppressing the truth. All right, let's uh, do chapter 9, 13 through 18. This wisdom I have also seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered the same poor man. Then I said, Wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard, rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Well, here we see Solomon back to observing and using his reason, reasoning. The story he sees play out is centered around the proverb in verse 16, wisdom is better than strength. And this is a typical statement that you would see in the book of Proverbs itself. We have the great king versus the insignificant city, the strength of siege engines against weakness a few men. The snares or nets are meant to evoke the nets and snares a few verses earlier, uh, grabbing up animals to death, leading to sudden demise. But wisdom here has proved better than strength, even though it was in the hands of a poor man who earthly wisdom would say would have nothing to offer. In verses 16 through 18, we see that the poor man's wisdom delivered the city His words were attended to over the ruler's words, even though the ruler's position allowed him to shout his words by comparison with the poor man who had a smaller social media following. But there's the sense that afterwards no honor followed for the poor poor man in spite of his wisdom, presumably because he was poor. Memories were short such that even the wisdom he employed was despised, which doesn't bode well for the city in the future. And we could certainly see how someone can believe a person from a lower station 
economically or caste-wise, has nothing of value to offer. And this is, of course, comparable to the anecdote in chapter 4. Do you remember the old and foolish king who would be admonished no more? But the poor wise youth rose out of prison to stand in his place. How did it end for that poor wise youth who then became king? The fickle crowds put him down too. So although wisdom might appear to be better than might, Solomon asks, what value is it if wisdom is ignored? But it seems that Solomon is again focusing with earthly eyes on what he is observing. Feeling almost like there should be a one-to-one relation between what the poor man offered and then being rewarded. Craig Bartholomew writes, The wisdom of the commoner triumphed over the besieger. But there is a stinger in Solomon's tale. In verse 18, one sinner destroys a whole lot of good. The sinner is the ruler of fools who ruled over the city that was delivered by the poor man's wisdom. His failure to attend to the wisdom that rescued the city subverts for Solomon the value of wisdom. No wonder he says in verse 13, it made a great impression upon him. What is the value of wisdom, although it's better than might, if it can be destroyed by one sinner? But again, you get the sneaking suspicion that Solomon's wisdom is of an earthly kind. So we must question Solomon's methodology further, the idea that all can be known by Solomon's sight and what and how he experiences life in the world and by applying his reason. Solomon sees the character consequence structure of Deuteronomy overturned. Righteous people being blessed, wicked people being cursed. But this is a paradox. We come to understand that there are too many kinks and gaps in creation to allow for a one-to-one exchange of blessing and cursing, short of God himself willing it. In Ecclesiastes 7.29 last week, we read, Truly, this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now, if Paul was the chief of sinners in the New Testament, perhaps given how much was entrusted, the spiritual treasures entrusted to Solomon, perhaps he is the chief of sinners in his time. Solomon's instruments used in his autonomous methodology were corrupt, full of kinks and gaps. His eyes to observe and his mind and his heart wholly given to sinful experience. Again, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Solomon's mistake was in believing that every action must have a corresponding blessing or cursing rather than seeing such proverbs as a general pattern and allowing that many events of injustice, oppression, or mystery will occur to us. To make a mechanical one-for-one approach robs God of his sovereignty and how he acts in creation, 
Think of the, uh, the Beatitudes, to be meek, to be the lowly, and to strive for that. Otherwise, Solomon's theology does not allow for the later suffering servant in Jesus. In Isaiah 53, I had intended to read all of Isaiah 53, but I will not do that. There will be a judgment in which blessings and cursings will be rightly apportioned and in which accounts will be set straight. In Ecclesiastes 3, 15b through 17, we read, And God requires an account of what is past. Moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment. Wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Of a whole poem of time, times and seasons in chapter 3, that is the most important time. There will be eternal rewards and there will be eternal cursings as well. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for opening your word to us. God, help us uh, as we approach prudently, as we walk prudently, as we come uh, into the sanctuary today. God, to honor you in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. In Jesus' name, amen.